All right, good morning, Northlake. Morning, morning. As you make your way to your places, good to see you. The time has finally come, not only for equip, for Sunday school, but for cooler weather, all right? And uh, all God's people said, amen, amen absolutely. So, morning, Joe. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you, uh, if you don't have an outline, go ahead and grab one from the back chair in the back row. That's going to be helpful for you today. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 1. We'll cover the whole chapter. Ecclesiastes 1, make sure you have an outline. Let me go ahead and pray for us and ask for the Lord's uh, help. We're going to look at the frustrations of life. And uh, those frustrations are by design. They have a purpose as we will see. All right, let me go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we, we pray to you because we are desperate for you. We need your help. Uh, we are a people who with clouded minds and sinful hearts and Lord, no doubt we, apart from your illuminating ministry of your spirit, Lord, we would we would be left in a mess. And so we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We're gonna be mindful of this, reminded this morning it is a living and enduring word. We're grateful for this. You cause us to be born again. You save us not by that which is perishable, but imperishable through the precious blood of Christ. We rejoice in this today. And we, we ask that now as we sit ourselves in front of incredible wisdom of which you've intertwined in your word that you would help us to glean from it, uh, that you'd help us to understand it. But Lord, we pray for understanding to the end that we would live by it. There would be an import of these truths into our lives and that we would be different. Uh, we would live differently than the rest of the world around us and we would do so, Father, for your glory of which you are deserving. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I've had several conversations with people and no doubt you probably have as well who uh, have that oh so common misconception that's typically attached to the book of Ecclesiastes that this book is a book of doom and what? Gloom, right? That it's 12 chapters that prove to be a tremendous source of life-shaping depression, right? And that's unfortunate. And it's unfortunate because that's typically the case when you're not yet mindful or at least stay mindful of what God is doing in and through this book. And there's something very specific that he is doing through this book. He's, number one, he's showing us, and this is by way of review, he's showing us the futility of life without him, right? God's saying, this is what life is like without me. This is what you're left with. And he's showing us the futility of life without him in order that we might what? If you remember, it's in your outline this morning, the kind of if you encapsulate the thrust of the book, is to show us the significance of life with him, that we would be taken up with the significance of life with him, right? Now, let's be honest, church, much, much of the reason that we need this book is not only is creation not what it ought to be, but we are not what we ought to be, right? Ever since the fall in the garden, we are warped, distorted, skewed people. We have a propensity to chase after empty things in order to satisfy us. We are bent at staring into broken things as a source of meaning 
and purpose, we seek for meaning in really all the wrong places. And so to this end, Solomon says, Havel, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. The message is pretty simple then. Men and women of all nations, anyone who's created in the image of God, which is all mankind, those things that you are looking at are vain in and of themselves apart from God. They are like smoke and vapor. They are incapable of offering to you what they are promising to you, right? They're here and then they're gone. They're fleeting, they're temporary. There's no lasting substance to them. And not to mention the fact that when the perplexities of life, the enigmas of life sweep over you in sort of a puzzling fashion, and they do and they will, like smoke itself, you reach out to try to take hold of it with some measure of understanding and it slips through your finger just like smoke or vapor. And Solomon says this is incredibly, incredibly frustrating. So we're gonna dive into chapter one. We get to see how does Solomon, the preacher, speak into this frustration? How does he achieve this purpose, showing you the futility of life without God in order to show you the significance of life with him? How does he achieve this? Well, I remind you last Sunday, we looked at chapter 12, verse 10. Look back for it for a moment. Last chapter, right? The very end of the book, chapter 12, verse 10. Be mindful today as we read this, these are words of truth, and I love the way it's phrased here. These are words of truth written correctly. They are given by God himself, by one shepherd. And being given by one shepherd, the great shepherd, it's no shock to us that these Words are put together and organized in a very distinct way. In fact, if you think about the book, there's really four briefcases of information and content and they're laid out on the table, okay? Four briefcases of information, sections in the book. We're gonna begin looking at the first section, briefcase number one, and it's labeled, enjoy life as a gift from God. Enjoy life as a gift from God, okay? We'll cover this this Sunday, chapter one, and next Sunday, chapter two. I want you to look at the end of chapter two for a moment, okay? As you make your way through the section, enjoy life as a gift from God, you realize happiness is not in man's own power. I don't have the capacity to extract enjoyment from life. All my striving and toiling are powerless to give true gratification. Look at the end of chapter two, verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it's from the hand of God. And then there's this profound, deep question of which the answer is implied, no? For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And the answer is who, church? No one, that's exactly right. If you take any principal truths away from chapters one and two. I want you to kind of make a note of this and we will be spending time this Sunday and next on these two things, okay? Principle number one, all good things, all good things are to be received and understood as coming from the hand of God if, big if, 
if they are to be enjoyed and used properly and joyfully. All good things must be recognized and understood as coming from his hand. And secondly, and this is heavy, you don't have the ability to extract enjoyment from life. Why? It's because God is the one who grants that ability. And by way of the book, who do you think he grants that ability to? Think about the conclusion. Conclusion of the matter when all has been heard, what does it say? Fear God and keep his commandments. So who does he, let me ask you, who does God give the ability to extract enjoyment from life? Who does he impart it to? Those who fear God and keep his commandments, right? You can lead it. Let's look into a pool right, right there. Absolutely. Now, while we know this and we can say, okay, this is great. I take it on my outline. I don't need to tell you this. Well, I'll just speak for myself. I'm pretty stubborn, right? And uh, it, sometimes it takes a while. You can lead a horse to water, right? But you can't make him drink. I'm the same way. And so what do I often need? And no doubt you often need from time to time in my stubbornness, I need someone to come alongside me and with direct love, prime me for the reception of what they're about to say, okay? That's a kind way of saying it. That's exactly what Solomon does here at the beginning of the book. Puts his arm around your shoulder, he primes you for the reception of the rest of the book and he forces us to stare into some rather unsettling realities about life. And he forces us to stare at these realities so that we might be what? So that we might be positioned to be pointed to the one who is satisfying, right? In fact, if you have a main idea over Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, it would be this. The frustrations of life, which we will unpack, the frustrations of life in a fallen world should do something. They should drive our hearts to a satisfying God. There are an array of frustrations we experience in life as broken people living in a broken world. Let me just open the floor for a moment. What are some of those frustrations of life you tell me that you can think of just off the top of your head? Unsaved children, Unsaved children right? Right. They bring grief to their mother. Absolutely. Death. Absolutely. That's great. Great segue here in a moment. Sinful flesh. I have this unredeemed flesh of which to still war and contend with, which is frustrating. Anything else? Difficulty in work, right? Uh, are there all sorts of expressions of inequity in some form or fashion throughout life? It's a big buzzword, it's sort of been hijacked, but that's true about life. Things are often not as they ought to be. They're upside down. Our sense of fairness and justice is a bit skewed. Why? We are broken people living in a broken world. And so there's a myriad of frustrations, okay? Let's see where Solomon begins his argument here in chapter one. He sets out to illustrate a few frustrations through the use of really almost a poem, right? You're gonna see three. There's a frustration in man's dominion, man's contribution, and man's wisdom, right? Look at verse three. He starts off by asking a rhetorical question. This is the New American Standard. He says, what advantage 
does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Now that's a big question. That's an eternally significant question. What does man gain from all of his striving, all of his toiling under the sun? And you get the sense that Solomon's unsettled by that question and we see why as you move to verse four. A generation goes and a generation comes, but, big word, the earth remains forever. Right out the gate, Solomon runs to an inescapable frustration in this life. Let me ask you, Northlake, what is the conundrum or the frustration that Solomon is pondering in verse four? What's that? What's it all worth? Okay. What does a man gain for sure in the question? Look at verse four. Nathan, we're gonna need some more coffee over here in a quip. More coffee, bring the coffee. All right. We live and we die. And what's, the, what's in juxtaposition to that? What remains? The earth, right? Here's the conundrum. He says, face the music. The, this, this world is not what it was intentionally intended to be, okay? And here's why, right? He does so by holding out two realities. Robin, just as you were saying, he holds out two realities in front of you. Again, it's meant to unsettle you, okay? Position you and prime you to receive the rest of the book, okay? Those two realities is that we are temporary creatures who live on an earth that seems to remain forever, right? You have the transitory nature of man and you have the permanent condition of creation. Transitory, permanent, temporary, fixed. And you're staring at these realities every single day. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever, okay? What is Solomon doing here? Friends, he's accentuating your transitory nature, temporary. Fleeting, it's not lasting, it's not permanent, it's not enduring, okay? And our experience of reality really vouches for this every single day. Today alone, over 150,000 people will die. This very minute that I am talking, over 100 people will die. Death is everywhere. It's an inescapable reality and it's a reminder that we are transitory. Now. As you ponder this, this does something to us, it bothers us, okay? It bothers us, especially when the earth seems to be permanently fixed in place. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And this is hard for us to reconcile in our minds who are, after all, we're made a little lower than the angels. Why do we and not the earth seem to be in a constant state of passing away. This doesn't seem right. Every day we experience the frustration over our dominion. This is how distorted things are now that we live outside of the garden. You'll recall, that's what Solomon does. He keeps his finger in Genesis throughout the whole book. That creation theology is a stream running through the middle of it, right? And if you hearken back to Genesis 1, you, you remember, Remind yourself that there's this grand momentum up to day six where man 
God creates man, he sets him up as the pinnacle of creation. And in chapter two, what does God give man? He gives him a responsibility, a special privilege. He's created in the image of God. He's unlike any of the created order. He's special in this way. And that mankind is positioned to rule and to reign over the created order. God really sets him up as sort of a king, lower K, on the earth. Man is his representative on earth. And Solomon says, outside of the garden, here's the twisted irony. It's that man passes away and the thing that he was created to rule over is the very thing that stays. You see the irony and you begin to see the frustration here. It's the complete inverse of what God had intended. The earth remains, but its Lord, lower L, dissolves into the dust of the earth. And this bothers Solomon. Bothers all of mankind, if we're honest enough. And then the preacher begins to enlist three examples from the realm of nature to make his case plain. If you need evidence, I present to you the sun, wind, and rivers. Look at verse five for a moment. Speaking of the earth remaining forever, also the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south and turning toward the north. The, the wind continues swirling along and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. These are realities we see every day. The sun continues to rise and fall, and this is a measure of God's faithfulness, no doubt. The winds and rivers maintain this constant sense of motion and uniformity of sequence. If you look at a map of even jet streams, all of these things are moving in a consistent pattern. As if to say, right, the earth kind of reaching out and say, hey, Mankind, you may be passing away, but here I am doing the same thing every single day. Notice verse eight though. Unless you think that somehow creation offers something of eternal significance, right? For those who worship the planet and whose mass mission in life is to save the planet, he combats that line of thinking by stating all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. All things are wearisome. The sun in that ever so consistent pattern, that hot ball of gas that's burned bright for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that shone down on your great, great grandparents who have been forgotten. It hastens to its place from which it rose, right? The word hastens there, it literally pants back, it limps, backs to its place, all to do what all over again? The same exact thing the next day. You have winds that blow towards the north and the south, they swirl about and on their circular courses, they return. And you have these verbs throughout, these five verbs, and it's just depicting this ongoing motion. There's a never, never an end to the winds blowing and yet there's no lasting testimony to their work. They're wearisome. 
You have rivers, huge bodies of water meandering around the world, working themselves all the way to the sea. And yet Solomon says, yet the sea never fills. And the point is the same throughout all of this. There's no lasting eternal testimony that nature can bring about. All things are wearisome. Here's the takeaway at this juncture, okay? The created order which includes man's dominion, cannot give any meaning because it is weary and it is broken. There's nothing, let me repeat that, there's nothing in the brokenness of this world that can offer eternal significance. We have to remember this, why? Because we live in the midst of a day where we are tempted to lift something up as ultimately satisfying, right? And Ecclesiastes says, nothing will work. All things are wearisome. There's a frustration in man's dominion. Things are not what they ought to be. Again, showing you the futility of life without him in order that he might show you the significance of life with him. It's not the only frustration that we see and there are many. The second one he unpacks in this briefcase. He reaches in and he takes out the frustration in man's contribution. You see it in verses nine through 11. If not man, if not the created order, none of these can offer eternal significance. What about man's efforts? Look at verse nine. That which has been is that which will be and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there was nothing new under the sun. There's a beautiful poetic structure here that's appropriate for its message, right? It's a literary way of really dancing round and round. And it's appropriate to the content of what's being unpacked here because it reminds us we're kind of all stuck. We're kind of all stuck on the treadmill of life and we're not going anywhere. He says there's nothing new under the sun. He says, east of Eden, outside of the garden, is there anything that can break us out of this treadmill? this inescapable prison that we're trapped in. We're, we're on this treadmill. We're all still experiencing the effects of the fall. Is there anything that can break us out of that? And in this sense, Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Every single endeavor, however much you laud it and celebrate it, when it first comes out in due time, you discover what? It's incapable of rescuing you from this treadmill of life. Does not remove you from the effects of the fall that you keenly feel every single day. And in due time, every effort of man is eventually gonna be consigned where? It's gonna be consigned to the scrap heap, right? Broken efforts by broken people living in a broken world. This is why he says in verse 10, is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. He goes on in verse 11. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Not only are our efforts cannot contribute to breaking out of this life east, east of Eden, but he goes on to say, everything to compound the frustration, everything will be forgotten. 
All your contributions will be remembered no more. Let me ask you this morning, just to think for a moment, how much do you know about your great, great, let's attach another great, 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 great grandparents. They're really great. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Galen. Apart from their greatness, Galen, why are they great? I don't have a clue. I don't really know them. I, don't, I saw a lot of you shaking your head. That's exactly right. I may know their names. If my family is really good about genealogy, family tree, which mine is not. Um, yeah, this is frustrating. My children will not know much about my great, great grandparents. They will not know how they contributed to society, how they spent their days. They really won't know much of any of this. This is what Solomon's saying here. Let me encourage you, you will be forgotten. Congratulations. This is frustrating. You will be forgotten. Whatever contributions you think you've made, all of our efforts, Ecclesiastes tells us, they're sandcastles. They're sitting there, they're waiting to be washed away by the tide. Our great-great-grandchildren will not remember us. Does it mean that we don't leave a legacy and an impact of which others don't quite understand? But the reality is much of that's forgotten, right? I don't know much about those before me. Reality is, Those after me won't know much about me. And so the question remains, well, where can meaning be found then? It's not in man's dominion. It's not in man's contribution. What's the aim of the book of Ecclesiastes? Where's meaning to be found? To the Lord, right? The futility of life without him to show you the significance of life with him. In light of these frustrations, in light of a broken world that is not what it ought to be, the only pathway to satisfaction and happiness and enjoyment of this life, which is broken and frustrating, is to fear God and keep his commandments. You can see Solomon with his hand on your shoulder. He says, trust me, I know from experience, which we'll get to in a second. And here's the profound part of this. This is by design. God's designed these frustrations. God has designed things this way. He's he's arranged life in a sin-cursed world so that it does disappoint you who seek satisfaction in anything but him. And this design of God is intended to shift our preoccupation with self, which is innate and ingrained, and our preoccupation to our own work and shift our preoccupation to him. These frustrations are here. Obviously there was creation as he intended it. With the fall, the curse on the planet is interwoven with all sorts of manifested brokenness and frustration. We don't need to look very hard to look around and go vanity of vanities, all is vanities. This is kind of a innate kind of conclusion we come to as we look at Life around us, just as Solomon did. And this is frustrating to say the least. Solomon's not even close to being done. There's another frustration 
of life under the sun, and that's the frustration of wisdom. And this is an interesting one here in verse 12 through 18, because how does the Bible normally speak of wisdom? It's good, it's be desired, which it is, and it's positive, and yet there's kind of a negative framing here, which we'll get to in a moment, okay? I want you to re- read with me verse 12. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. To which, as a Bible student, you're asked, why is it grievous? We'll unpack it in a second. I have seen all the works, verse 14, which I have done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Here's that theme again. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. What's the main idea of Ecclesiastes 1 and 2? The frustrations of life in a fallen world should drive your heart to a satisfying God. Keep on to that, okay? There's frustrations of wisdom here revealed in verses 12 through 18. Number one, you see wisdom cannot change reality. And number two, wisdom can actually increase sorrow. It cannot change reality and it cannot, it can actually increase sorrow. Now, Drew touched on this for a moment. As we unpack verses 12 through 18, those seven verses, there's this, at least initially, a striking seeming contradiction here from the rest of God's word, right? I want you to look at Proverbs chapter three for a moment. Proverbs three, you have this sort of negative summary of wisdom here, which is a massive turn from what is normally taught about wisdom, right? You look at Proverbs 3, 13 through 18, just as Drew mentioned, it's to be desired, to be sought after and pursued and cherished and lived by. And yes, and yes, and yes, all of those things are true. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her fast. Friends, obviously the dividends promised in the investment in wisdom are lavish, right? Long life, riches, honor, pleasantness, peace, happiness. Who would vote against that list? No one. But what the preacher here in Ecclesiastes mentions in his rather abrupt and gruff way is that there's another side to wisdom that coats it with irony. And the irony is this, wisdom has several handicaps of which those who quest after it must reckon. Or to put it another way, wisdom has limitations. And Solomon comes to terms with this. And again, this is frustrating. 
And because Solomon's words here are often arresting to people who read it, would have been in his day, they knew Proverbs 3. He begins to offer his credentials for doing so, right? He gives a little history for the sake of ethos in his writing, right? He beefs up his credibility to to listen on, pay attention. He says, I, the preacher, I've been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And after he became king over Israel, Solomon looked into the purpose and meaning of life under the sun. Now, let me pause for a moment. In being the king of Israel, how would this have positioned Solomon to perform this search into the meaning and purpose of life? How in being king is Solomon well positioned to perform this search? Every resource imaginable. His laboratory is vast, right? Okay. Not to mention, what else do you know about Solomon? First Kings chapter three. He was endowed with what? Great wisdom, right? Wisdom that exceeded anyone before him or after him apart from Christ. First Kings 3.12, behold, I have done according to your words. This is the Lord saying, behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you or before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And this unique combination of incredible resources in conjunction with profound God-given wisdom permitted and enabled Solomon to conduct his search to the utmost extent. We have in Solomon the most mature and complete effort to understand life under the sun that was ever made. Was it a perfect search? No, why? Because Solomon is a fallen man. As one said, even with a flesh to contend with. And his life was marked by instances of that very truth. Nevertheless, this was a sincere investigation. He conducted it with earnestness and diligence and thoroughness. Look at verse 13. He says, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Now there's a lot of gems here. There's an array of rich words that kind of spliced together into, into Solomon's credentials. Really gives a sense of the force and energy of his search, right? Number one, it was, it was, it was diligent. He says, I set my mind. The, the idea here is this is not a man dabbling. This is a driven man, a possessed man. He was committed to finding out what life was all about. And he was gonna do it even if it drained every last gram of tears, sweat and blood from his frame. I set my mind. You also see the search was incredibly thorough. To seek and to explore. The word there, this is a passionate investigation. You picture a person picking up something and literally looking at it from every single angle. There's not any nook or cranny that's not examined. It's thorough. He turns it over every which way. Looking at the meaning and purpose of life. His exploration is also wide ranging. He says, all that has been done under heaven. (laughs) That's pretty expansive. All that has been done under heaven. Now, if you were a wise man in Solomon's day, this was a natural activity. To investigate the data of life was a normal task for individuals who were considered wise and Solomon was no exception. 
In fact, he was a bit of a pioneer in this department. Look at 1 Kings chapter four for a moment. Flip there, 1 Kings chapter four. Uh, Solomon literally examined everything, everything. The habits of animals, patterns of plants, the customs of tribes and families. He, he analyzed everything. All the general rules of human behavior, he learned and he taught them. 1 Kings 4, he probed into every area of life. 1 Kings 4, 32. Actually, 23, I think. 1 Kings, let me look. Because I'm realizing a typo. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32. Here we go. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were... 1,005, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon had embarked upon an intense, passionate, committed, diligent search, but notice In Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that search wasn't the only thing that was difficult. What was also difficult was accepting its results. As he performed the search, there were some things that that became apparent to him. Look at the end of verse 13 in Ecclesiastes 1. The search itself, Solomon says, is a grievous task. The word there, it's harsh, it's dangerous, it's incredibly frustrating. It goes back to verse three. What advantage does man have in all his work that he does under the sun? And notice who is responsible for distributing this grievous task. Who's responsible? Look at verse 13. Which God, right, has given to the sons of man to be afflicted with. God has so arranged life in a sin-cursed world that it disappoints you who seek satisfaction in anything but him. It's by God's design. And wisdom by itself doesn't negate, it doesn't offset this God-created reality of things. Wisdom and knowledge apart from God are not able to grant mankind understanding of life's mysteries of which there are many. And it definitely, it definitely cannot change life's inequities, which we'll see in a moment in verse 15. To this end, Solomon says, verse 14, here it is, I have seen all the works. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, here's the conclusion, all is vanity and striving after wind. There's the idea of Havel again right? Smoke, vapor, striving after the wind, which is a word picture of Solomon of a shepherd trying to corral the wind as he would a herd into the fold, right? Imagine someone trying to corral the wind. It's a pretty powerful word picture, right? We snatch after meaning and purpose in life and apart from God, it just escapes us. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I want you to notice what bothered Solomon was not the lack of wisdom. He had wisdom, right? But it was the presence of wisdom's limitations. 
the limitation number one that he hearkens with or hastens to is that wisdom cannot change reality. It cannot change reality. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. Much of what is wrong with life is not wisdom's fault. It is the result of life in a fallen and broken world. Life is crooked, is it not? We could spend the next 30 minutes just talking about all the manifested forms of which that crookedness displays itself, right? It's full of injustice, it's stamped by suffering, it's plagued by weakness, it's terrorized by crime, the list goes on and on. In fact, life has so much wrong about it that wisdom stands by really powerless to do anything but to observe it. Now, wisdom is great in analyzing the trends of brokenness. It helps grant some discernment and some understanding. It's great at documenting the ways our fallenness manifests itself. It gives you a lens and paradigm through which to see these things. But it's impotent in prescribing the solutions to our brokenness. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Wisdom can have its finger on the problem, but it cannot straighten out what is crooked or count what is simply not there. That is the point Solomon is making. Bottom line, wisdom by itself cannot change reality. These frustrations, just because you are wise doesn't mean they dissipate and vanish and go away. You still live in a world that is broken and not what it ought to be. It cannot solve the frustration you experience in life as a broken person in a broken world. And it cannot do so, why? It can't do so because it can't remove the effect of man's sin and God's curse on creation. And this in and of itself adds to our frustration. Ultimately, church, where are these frustrations intended to drive us to? exactly right. A satisfying God, a God who can, praise God, a God who can change reality, a God who can heal brokenness, a God who can reverse the fall, a God who can remove the frustration and literally blow away the havel, the vanity, vanities, all is vanity. The frustrations of life and a fallen world should drive our hearts to a satisfying God. The conclusion of the matter when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Right out the gate, it says, I don't know, you're pretty stubborn. Let me kind of point you to a few things which are just absolutely gut-wrenching and frustrating. There's frustration in man's dominion, his contribution, even in wisdom, all this search is a grievous task. Why? Wisdom cannot change reality. By all means, possess it. By all means, pursue it but it's not gonna make a broken world unbroken. Solomon's not done. Another reason wisdom is limited and therefore frustrating is wisdom can actually increase sorrow. Look at verse 16. Just imagine being with Solomon here. I said to myself, he, the idea is he communed with his heart. He talked to himself. And, and the answer to his perplexed state is not more wisdom, he says, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. 
and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. He graduated summa cum laude from wisdom school, was the t- is the takeaway, right? And he set my, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Second limitation of wisdom is that it can actually increase sorrow. With life as crooked and lacking as it is, wisdom really only calls your attention to the sour notes of life, right? It cannot bring the singing into tune. It cannot resolve the melody. If a choir, just for way of illustration, if a choir cannot carry their parts, okay? If they can't sing in tune, if the rhythm and the pitch are faulty, if the words are pronounced sloppily, you can picture this choir, It is better for the people listening on to not be trained musicians, yes? Why? When you're a trained musician, how are your ears tuned? You hear everything, every missed note, every faulty word pronounced, okay? Was at a football game on Friday night and there was a junior high football team singing the national anthem. It was painful to listen to. It is better for the people listening to not be trained musicians in that regard. Why? It's because every mistake, every miscue is noticed and observed. If you are a trained musician, then you can agree with the preacher's second proverb here in verse 18, right? Because in much wisdom, there's much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing The wiser one is in musical things, the more a bad performance is going to pain them. And that's true about life as well. In the same way, the, the more we learn about life's tragedies, the greater will be our anguish. And the word here for grief or pain speaks of a stinging, pounding pain. It was literally used of the pain, going back to Genesis chapter 24 of adult circumcision. It's that kind of grief and pain. And this is what Solomon learned from experience. The more wisdom he obtained, Solomon saw how mad and stupid even the wisest man can become because of his sin. He knew it anecdotally and experientially. His own life attested to this. He had massive parts of his life where he tried to live with little regard for his creator. So Solomon knew this full well. The more I grew in wisdom, the more anguish came my way. Wisdom and knowledge in and of themselves cannot satisfy, they cannot change reality. And by exposing life's sorry sides, they can actually increase your grief. To which we, as those who are working our way through this book, we have to ask in closing, well, what what do I do with all of this, right? Let me give you just two, and then I'll open it up with kind of a broad question. One is by all means, do not let the takeaway be to bemoan wisdom, okay? As Drew said, pursue it, seek it, love it, cherish it, live by it. Live your life well according to wisdom, to the glory of God. 
But if you don't get the message of Ecclesiastes, you will be woefully disappointed if your chief end is just to be wise and have understanding and knowledge. It will never change or resolve the brokenness of the world and will actually only increase your grief. The wise believer takes the message of Ecclesiastes and does what chapter 12 says. By all means, I'm gonna enjoy life. I'm gonna steward my days well to his glory. How am I gonna go about doing that? Well, all things are to be received and understood as coming from the hand of God if they're to be used properly and joyfully. And I live my life knowing that God is the one who imparts to me the ability to extract enjoyment in the first place. If I miss those two things, misery. Do you know a lot of miserable people? We can all attest to a lot of miserable people around us. They they don't know and live by this book. I think the second one is just to kind of bring it back to the beginning. Friends, you don't need reminders of the frustration in your dominion, contribution, and wisdom. You see it everywhere. You probably saw it this week. The answer to that state is to not to be woe is me and be in a perpetual state of depression, is it? No, I'm given eyes to see these frustrations as they are. And then I remember a God who rules and reigns over all these things and my heart is prompted to fear God and keep his commandments. You know what it does to your inner well-being? It brings about what Psalms talk about, ashray, well-being. There's a peace. Yes, death is all around me. Yes, wisdom cannot change reality. It can actually increase sorrow. I know all of this, but as, as I, my, my paradigm is here, my eyes are fixed, fearing the Lord, these frustrations of life should drive me to him. And you know what happens? I spend my life blessed, happy, ashray, well-being in every area of my life. Let me ask you just in closing, we have like five minutes. There are some of those questions, you know, maybe in a small group where you ask a question and it's really leading a group right to the water. It's kind of hard not to see it. It's almost the, the equal to a yes or no question. That's not this. This is a Grand Canyon sort of question. It's broad, it's open and potentially dangerous. Okay, so that's my footnote. If you know the wisdom of this book, it has import into your life. How does your life begin to look differently than the rest of the world around you? Really broad question. There's hope, absolutely. You live with eternity in mind, love it. One of the themes of the book, enjoy life in light of judgment. I will give an account, right? To judge and creator. Enjoy life in light of judgment. Eternity in mind. Natalie. Life is not without meaning, right? When he says Havel, he's not saying it's just empty and meaningless, right? There's incredible meaning and purpose to the person who fears God and keeps his commandments. You imagine that, just ponder the sad state. If you don't have that orientation, oh, that is depressing. All you know is frustration, that's it. A generation goes and a generation comes and that's all you experience. What else? 
Yeah. Yeah, man, it totally reorients what we do stress over, right? Absolutely, which gives it an eternal perspective. Much of this will be forgotten, right? It's not about my name. We'll see later in chapter five, you, know, you can hoard riches, then you just stress over how to keep it and how to protect it. Doesn't solve life's problems. What else? Craig, in the back. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You have a biblical worldview, right? Field every question, conundrum of life. Doesn't mean you can like piece together and understand every complexity of his providence and sovereignty, but you have a grid through which to see everything. Yeah. That does make you radically distinct from the rest of the world. Thanks, Craig. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You notice people who that, I mean, their lives actually may, um, there's varying degrees and these are some of these inequities that we perceive. They're not inequities to God, but why is one person's life marked with greater tragedy and sorrow and pain than another? That's a hard, that's a hard question, right? I, I, I don't know. But you see said person pass through with a state of contentedness, and steadiness and peace that's just otherworldly, right? Why? Part of it is they, they, get, they get the wisdom bound up in this book. Yeah, absolutely. May we all be that contented, right? We've got much of the book to still unpack. And so I encourage you, be reading it, be praying. Um, and uh, yeah, let's ask the Lord's help to, to apply these things, but also prep our hearts for the next hour, okay? Father God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for its ministry to our lives. Even as Craig says, Lord, you have not left us without a lens through which to see life. Yes, there's frustration in our dominion and contribution. There's even limitations to wisdom, but we're not left without orientation or, or, or navigational direction, Lord. You, you, you've given us a compass through which to see to live and to walk. And the whole of this book's gonna continue to drive us to you. The whole of this book's gonna direct hearts and minds that are, yes, living in a world that is not what it ought to be and you're gonna direct us to fear you and keep your commandments. And Lord, in such living, we know there's tremendous, tremendous blessing. And so we look forward to you continue to work in us throughout the coming weeks. Lord, we pray for our next hour we pray that the entirety of the service, every component would be presented to the end that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high. The one who has appeared as high priest cleanse us through his precious blood, not the blood of goats and lambs, but the spotless lamb himself, Peter says. Lord, help us to now marvel in the next hour to give you the worship that you deserve and use us as we minister to each other in the time of fellowship to encourage one another in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.